We are going to be looking at a courtroom scene this morning with this one word that's found throughout the book of Romans, and that is this word justification or to justify. It is a courtroom word, if you will. It means acquitted or more so it means to be declared righteous. Now, we're familiar with courtroom scenes, right? We, we've seen uh, Perry Mason, I, I well, I was a little kid, all right, when Perry Mason was out there. When was that, the, the 60s? That's right, say 50s, 60s? Anyway, uh, Perry Mason, uh, Matlock, um, help me out here. What other murder, sh- okay, uh, courtroom, okay, law and order. Okay, and so we have been, by the uh, television anyway, invited into courtrooms and so there's some things that you know about courtroom settings. There are other things that you really uh, don't know because if you base it on TV, it's like totally wrong. Um, and, and sometimes that irritates me when I'm watching Matlock and I'm thinking, he can't do that in a court of law. You know? But anyway, you, have, you understand there are certain things that happen in a courtroom setting. Well, we're going to look at that a little bit, but there is something that does not happen in a courtroom setting, but in God's courtroom, in his throne room where he is seated as king and kings render verdicts, they are the judges of the land, if you will, there is something that takes place there that is beyond our earthly courtroom scene that we're going to find in this word justification. Now, by way of review. We have seen that there is this thing called original sin. Now, we looked at that in Romans chapter 5, and basically what we discovered is that because of Adam, not only were we given or birthed with this tendency or proclivity to sin, but that we were actually, Romans 5.19, we were made sinners. And so it's not that I sin and therefore I'm considered a sinner, but because I am a sinner, I sin. It is this sinful nature that we have received from Adam. And the extent of that sin is that it is an infinite offense. I'm going back two weeks now. An infinite offense before a holy God. And we are therefore worthy, completely worthy of an infinite punishment because of the nature of that sin. And the scripture even goes on in Romans 3, we learned that there is no one who can do good. Apart from Christ and the sinful nature that we have inherited from Adam that causes us to sin, has actually constituted, the NASB says in Romans 5.19, constituted us as sinners. Today, In view of this sin, we're going to look at this concept of justification in a courtroom setting. The book back in the 70s that was so popular, I'm okay, you're okay, the truth is, I am not okay, and you are not okay. In World War II, all of these wars have made this abundantly clear. This concept that we ran into in Romans 3.9, it declares all of us as not just subject to sin. It says we are under sin. We're under the control of sin. We're under the condemnation, the infection, if you will, of sin. It, it, we, we, we reek of sin. There's this 
this um, urge within our soul to sin apart from Christ. And we are therefore lost. And, and Paul says in, in Ephesians 2, when we're dead in our transgressions and sins. And so the Bible paints a very poor picture of mankind who from Adam, in which he was made in the image of God, Adam broke that image by rebelling against God. And church, that is me. And that is you. And the question then arises, who can rescue us from this body of death? Because that's the verdict. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. That's the verdict. We deserve death. Spiritual death, physical death, eternal death. Now let's look at Romans chapter 2, verse 12, and I'm going to be going through a few verses a little quickly because I, I do want to spend time, not just in us grasping what justification is, because it's not all that difficult, but the implications of justification. Chapter 2, verse 12, all who sin apart from the law, are you there with me, will also perish apart from the law, and all who, are, all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. Verse 16, this will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. See, God, as judge, presides in this courtroom, and he has declared us as sinners. He has declared us as guilty and worthy of punishment. Remember it says, because of Adam, we all fell. We were condemned in Adam's sin, before we did anything. So we're not talking about our actual sins. We are talking about from birth, we were made sinners and we had been condemned, rendered a guilty verdict in God's heavenly courtroom. We're found guilty, we're condemned, and we deserve punishment. What do we do? For all have sinned and been pronounced guilty. Look at chapter 3, verse 19. Chapter 3, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. How? Because of his law. Verse 20, therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. So will obeying the law somehow exonerate us or acquit us? Can we kind of tip the scales of justice in our favor, our way by following the law? I mean, even the moral law. Can this happen? The answer is no. Imagine in a courtroom setting that someone has been accused of murder and found guilty, and his plea is, well, your honor, instead of condemning me to death, because apparently, you know, this is first-degree murder he's accused of and, and found guilty of, he says, well, do you mind if I just do some community service, maybe 10 hours of community service? Can I find my justification, my acquittal, by serving the community? What do you think the judge is going to say? No, 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 I'm sorry, it doesn't work that way. You know, how many of you, when you wrong someone, it's really hard for you to say, oh, okay, let me word it this way. 
You know someone who, when they wrong someone, it's so hard for them to say, I am sorry, and instead, they try to do a nice, good, loving act, hoping that that's what's going to erase the offense. And the truth is, it doesn't. And we must be forgiven. It's so hard for us to get that down. For, for some of us, it's not too hard. But there's this tendency we want to earn. We, you know, let me just show you what a nice guy I am so that you'll forget how mean I was to you the other day, right? God, tell you what, let me do some community service and let that be sufficient to wash my sins away. And God says, it doesn't work that way. In God's courtroom, we are found guilty. And the punishment is death. That is the judgment God has rendered. The wages of sin is death. So the law, it, it can't rescue us. You can't follow the law. Let me do community service. The law only highlights all the more that I'm a sinner. I can't keep the moral law. I will fail, even at one point. You fail at one point. Scripture says you failed at all. You are now pronounced guilty. Romans 3, though. Romans 3, verse 23 to 25. And we spent a couple weeks ago time on this passage, so we're not going to do that now. But let me just remind you, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His Blood, And we looked at this idea of atonement that if, in, if you have the NIV, it says atonement. It is a Greek word that means, pro, that we in English is propitiation. That's a $10 word, propitiation. Now, atonement gets us there, but it falls a little bit short of what it's really getting at. And Christ's death on the cross was able to cancel out our sins through faith, cancel out our sins, and thereby satisfy the wrath of God. And the wrath of God is there because we, in our, by our sins, have offended, infinitely offended His holiness. So if God is going to forgive us, something has to happen to our sins. God can't just wave His magical spiritual wand and say, you know what, I just feel like I feel good today. I'm going I'm to forgive you of your sins. When we forgive one another of their offenses against us, we are doing what we are canceling it. We're saying, you know what? You owe me nothing. And this is what God does. But a payment, there must be a payment with life for life. That's an Old Testament passage, life for life. It is no different in the New Testament. You deserve death? Well, someone's got to die here. If I'm going to forgive this sin, someone's got to die here. And that's why Jesus came. He was a propitiation. And his death then satisfied the righteous demands of God's holiness. But today in our courtroom scene, we simply need the verdict, not guilty. 
right? Not guilty. You get to walk free. You're, there's no punishment. You're not incarcerated. And if you were no longer, you are set free. Why? Because of that verdict, that declaration, not guilty. But now step into God's courtroom, and there is something more that needs to happen, must happen. And it is, it's two things. It is, yes, the declaration, you are not guilty, but there is something else. There's something else. And we find that now in Romans 4, verses 6 through 8. Now, Paul spends this entire chapter talking about this idea of justification. And that, at, excuse me, Abraham believed God and it was what? Credited to him as righteousness. On the ledger of heaven, Abraham's faith, not his works, because his works would fall short. So it's not based on that. It's not based on him following the law because Moses came 400 years later. It's based on what? Faith. And for his faith, God said, I am going to credit you on my heavenly ledger with righteousness. You see, that doesn't happen in our courtroom scenes. It never happens in Perry Mason. The judge never says, not only are you acquitted, but now you stand righteous. You see, it's one thing to be innocent and declared not guilty. It is another thing entirely to be declared righteous. In our courtroom, there would be no need for this because the idea is that we don't go to jail. We don't go to prison. For us as Christians, yes, we do not have to spend eternity in punishment, separated from God forever and ever in what Jesus called hell. We get to do what? We get to spend eternity with him in heaven. Now imagine this. The judge says, not only are you exonerated, acquitted, rendered not guilty, but the squalid conditions that you live in downtown Orlando or wherever you happen to live, I am going to now pull you up out of that horrendous neighborhood lifestyle, etc., and you get to live on my estate. And you're going to love it. It's awesome. There are mansions on my estate, not just mine, but mansions on my estate, and I'm going to give one of them to you. Have you ever heard of a judge doing that? Of course not. But that is what God has offered to us. So there's more at stake here. There's not just us being told you're not guilty, and therefore you don't have to spend eternity separated from God. That is God's mercy indeed. But God now extends his grace to us. You see, mercy can be explained this way. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you do not deserve. See, I deserve banishment from God's presence forever because of my sin. But God says, you know what? Because of the death of my son and his blood shed for you, you do not have to spend eternity in hell and separated from me. Well, where am I going to spend eternity? Hello? I get to spend it now with God. See, that's his grace. I don't deserve that. So God's mercy 
is not getting what I deserve. I deserve hell. I don't get that. Grace is, I am receiving what I do not deserve. See, that is in his presence, with him, forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And so God's courtroom scene is more than what we would see on Perry Mason or experience in any courtroom here on earth. Because it's not just a rendering of not guilty, it is a rendering of righteous. You are righteous. So let me ask you, where does that come from? Why would I be considered righteous in the sight of God? Now listen to this. When the thief died on the cross, he said, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. And Jesus said to the thief, Truly, truly, I say unto you, today you will be with me in paradise. So, what righteous actions did this thief on the cross do before he went to heaven? Why would God look at him and say, not only are you not guilty, but you're righteous, so enter into my heaven? There was nothing. Where did his righteousness come from? And see, this is the theme throughout the entire book of Romans. And it talks about in chapter 1, verse 17, a righteousness found in the gospel. A righteousness has been revealed to us from heaven. Remember, it said, because of Adam's sin, I was made a sinner. And then it contrasts that with this. Because of Jesus' righteous action, dying on the cross and being resurrected from the dead, I am now made righteous. Not just not guilty, but righteous. And so this concept of crediting us righteousness is a term that the, the, the Greek gets at. It is imputed righteousness. So now, with Romans chapter 4, verse 6 through 8, let me go ahead and read that. And we're going to look at this concept here. David says, now he just quoted about Abraham believing God and it was credited in him to righteousness. And he now says in verse 6, David says the very same thing when he speaks of the blessedness. Underline that word blessedness. We've got to look at that. The blessedness of the man to whom God credits or imputes righteousness apart from works. How am I imparted righteousness upon, apart from what? It isn't. My righteousness, or, or, yeah, isn't my righteousness found in my works? And he's saying, absolutely not. Your righteousness, when God looks upon us, it comes from heaven. Hmm. And now he quotes this. This is from Psalm 32. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Verse 9 and on, it talks about this blessedness. Can I ask you a question? Do you see faith anywhere in this passage? The answer is no. And do you see imputed righteousness anywhere in this passage? And the answer is no. Then Paul, why are you using this verse to say that David says the same exact thing that God said to Abraham? He says, because of your righteousness, I'm going to 
Because of your faith, I will impute righteousness to you. Where is that found in this passage? I see acquittal. I see not the rendering, not guilty. Your sins are not held against you. Actually, right there in the last phrase, it says, whose sin is not imputed to him. And it's that same concept of credit. It's the same Greek word. But where is the imputation of righteousness? It is found in this one word, bless. Bless. Now, I will admit that to a degree, I'm blessed if the judge says you're not guilty. But when we think of blessed, you're a blessed man. You think of what you have. You think of your blessings. You think of uh, the, the rewards that God has given you. When I am in heaven, I will be blessed by all of the rewards that God grants me and grants to you. And so when we talk about blessed, we get this picture of reward and the blessing that God pours out upon us for things done. And where is this blessedness? Let me use an illustration here. This right here, illustration, okay, I'm no artist. A blank white piece of paper with just, Rusty could do better than this, okay? Um, this is just, this is my sin. I don't know how you draw your sin, but this is my sin. This is my sin. A bunch of black marks all over this white page. Guilty. That's what this page represents. Guilty. But Christ has acquitted us. Christ has rendered the not guilty verdict, and he has washed my sins away, and I am now a blank page, if you will. I am clean. I would not look at this and say, wow, that's such a blessed picture. That is such a wonderful work of art. I just love it. I'm going to put a frame around it and hang it up in my room. I would never, would anyone here do that? Good. Instead, I did my best to find a good picture here. Something must be found on the canvas, church, a picture. Now, I chose this one only because um, it was readily available to me, granted, but I, I really love this picture. My wife and I love the color here, but we also love those old-looking houses that look new, like they've been remodeled, look beautiful, and have wraparound porches, and yeah, just like this. If you look closely enough, I, I think you might even find a few rocking chairs. I love rocking chairs. And it's not because I'm getting older. I just love rocking chairs. You know, sitting or a swing. You understand what I'm saying, right? I love that. This is a beautiful picture. I love this. I love this. You see, for us to be blessed, there's got to be something on the canvas. There's got to be the impartation of beauty found in Christ's righteousness. So I'm blessed, not just because I no longer look like this, but I, I do have this, but something has been put on the canvas, and it's a righteousness. God says to me, Mike, I invite you into my kingdom, but it's not because your sins are just, not simply because your sins are forgiven, but you, Mike, have been declared righteous. And that righteousness comes from Christ himself. The 
according to justification, the charges have been dropped. I have been declared by God righteous. Now, I want you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 12. You know, to, I'm going to switch this around. I'm going to switch this around. I want you to turn instead to Philippians 3 first. Philippians 3. The men, we, we touched on this passage. Uh, I, I believe it was in the men's group briefly. I'm going to do that a little bit here. And I want us to see the implications then of this concept of justification. Now, Paul says in Philippians 3, verse 4, excuse me, verse 3, for it is we who are the circumcision, not those who are under law, he is responding to, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Can I ask you this? What kind of confidence do you suppose Paul would have in the flesh? He actually lists it there for us, if you didn't know. I mean, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, a tribe of Benjamin. He was zealous for the law. He was even willing to persecute Christians. And because of this persecution, many of them died, by the way. And he was an accomplice to their murder. But he was zealous, and he was opposed to the church, and he was filled with this legalistic righteousness, and that he could, you know, look at this, how I follow the law. This is me. Look how wonderful and awesome I am. Look at how well I keep the law. Of course, he doesn't say on a back note, uh, and here's how I don't keep the law, uh, but here's how I keep the law. That is, that is his confidence in the flesh, and all of you could have, to some degree, a confidence in the flesh. Look at me. Look at what I've done. You know, husbands and wives, when you guys get in arguments with one another, what are you, you're pointing out all my faults. Now, let me tell you all about my good points, right? Isn't that what we can do? We, we justify ourselves. Paul says, I put no confidence in the flesh. As a matter of fact, he goes on in verse 7 and says, but whatever was to my profit, whatever was to my profit, whatever, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Loss. The very thing that he held up to his credit, he now says, but this discredits me. Why? Because I really need to show you the backside of it all. Let me tell you how I broke the law. Let me tell you how I persecuted Jesus, the Son of God, myself, and condemned those who were followers of Christ. See, he didn't share that with us before. But all of this that he held up to his honor, actually discredited him. Not because of his sins, but because it was truly meaningless and empty before God. And he goes on, he says, And now consider it lost for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything, everything a loss. And he's talking about everything in life, everything. He considers it a loss compared to all of these blessings, your home, your family, your job, all of these things that I would say, these are blessings, but they are a loss compared to, guys, never turn to your wife and say, you know what, you are a loss. To never say that. I'm not encouraging that. Compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing 
Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. And he says this, I consider them rubbish. This is a very, very gracious English rendering of this Greek word. It literally means human excrement. I could think of other words. But Paul pulls no punches here, and he puts it out, out, to there, out there. Especially you Jews who, Jews who think you've really got it together because you follow the law so well. I did better than you. That, that's the implication here. I did better than you. But it's all a loss. It is human excrement. It is dung to be cast out into the outhouse or the pasture to fertilize or whatever. It reeks. It is a stench. It amounted to nothing. It was to my loss. All of this that I held up, look at me. God had to hold his nose and say, I see it. It meant nothing. It did not sway the heart of God at all. And it was absolute dung compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I consider them rubbish, dung, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. And we're going to be unwrapping this word probably next week because I know I'm not going to finish the sermon today. But I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. And in view of this, being in Christ, he says this, I want to know Christ. It, it, it's not that he just wants to know about Christ. It's not that he wants to go back and reread his, his letter to the Romans, which he had written before this, and say, you know what, I, I just want to, I want to study Christ more. And so do that, he rereads his letter to the Romans. No, I want to know Christ. I want to experience this intimate relationship with me, with him. That's what I want to experience. Because he has imparted his life, the, the, the righteousness, all the righteousness. He, he fulfilled the law perfectly. To introduce chapter 4 of Romans, in the very last verse of Romans 3, Paul asks this question. Does faith then do away with the law? Does it do away with it? Of course not. Faith, rather, upholds the law. And it's for this reason. We could never keep the law perfectly. And that is the only way in which we could be declared righteousness, righteous apart from Christ. But Christ did, and he followed the law perfectly. And so my faith in Christ upholds the law because Christ fulfilled it perfectly, and he has taken that perfect following of the law, and he has imparted it unto me. And I am declared righteous in God's heavenly courtroom. And according to Romans 5.19, I am actually made righteous because of what he has done for me. 
I don't deserve that. It, it, and so for Paul, he says, because of this, 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 this stirs up this longing and desire. I want to know Christ, and I want to embrace him and follow him and fall in love with him more and more and more as the days go by. There's this passion that swells in my heart when I think of this courtroom scene. And it's not just that I am acquitted, but I gain access into the kingdom of God because of what Christ has done for me. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection in a daily experience in this relationship with Christ and the power that raised Christ from the dead now lives in me. And as I mentioned several weeks ago, it has made you and me a new creation in Christ. The old is gone. That old me, gone. And I am now in Christ, a new creation. Jesus used the term born again. John uses the term born of God. And this is what stirs up in the very heart of Paul. And I want to stir that up in you. I want you to see something here. That what Christ has accomplished for you on the cross and the very fact that he has justified you by faith, you didn't do anything to deserve this. It is purely by God's grace. That there should be something within us that longs to know Christ and be known by him. To know, intimately experience this resurrection and even the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in death. That means me crucified. My desires, my dreams. Paul had the dream of becoming one of the most awesome Pharisees ever tutored under Gamaliel, who was a well-known Pharisee, and yes, a godly man. He wanted to be all of that, and he had to lay it all down because he was headed down the wrong path, and he needed to embrace Jesus. I want to conclude with this, at least for today, this last implication of justification. And that is going to be found in Romans 12. And we're just going to take a sneak peek at this. That's all that we can do. I, I've preached on it before. I'm not going to spend a lot of time, but I, I want us to remember. And that is this. There is a battle in the heavenly realms. Michael, the archangel, Satan, the red dragon, with all of their followers, there were, Satan had a third of the angels in heaven following him. Two-thirds were following Christ. Michael the archangel leading in this battle. We are given an indication of when this war took place. In verse 10, he says, Now have come, now have come, the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. This happened at the cross resurrection and ascension and see Jesus being seated at the right hand. All of these things, it, that is when this war took place in heaven. Now, if you don't believe me, look at the verses preceding verse 9. Excuse me, verse 7. And it is Christ's earthly ministry. Now, here is the declaration. Up to that point, 
of Christ's ministry, death, resurrection, ascension to heaven, and seating at the right hand of the Father, being declared now the king of this kingdom. <clears throat> Satan had access to the throne room of God. He could bring accusations, worthy accusations, <clears throat> before God. And if you look at the, the verses following it, the passage I read in Romans 3 and verses 26, God did not count the sins of those in the Old Testament against them because he, had, he was looking ahead. He was looking ahead to the death of his son Jesus in which by his death, these people would be justified. Satan at the cross was no longer gained access to the courtroom of God. Satan, the prosecutor of the brothers, was disbarred. Do you know what the bar is in a courtroom? It is that bar that separates those who are visitors from the actual courtroom in which the defendant and the defense attorney and the prosecuted and the, excuse me, the, the defense attorney and the defendant and the, uh, the prosecutor are with the judge, witnesses being placed on the stand. There is this bar, if you will, and it stands about yay high, and there's a little door there. That is the bar in the courtroom. When you go as a lawyer and you take your bar exam, when you pass it, that allows you to cross this bar into the courtroom before the judge and make your appeals before the judge. Satan has been disbarred. That means he has been kicked out of the courtroom. He is no longer allowed to come before the judge and bring any accusation. Why? Because of the cross. Why? Because the power of the cross and the righteousness that Christ had has now been applied to you. His righteousness imputed to you. So what accusation does the devil have, legitimate accusation, does he have against you? He has zero because you not only stand acquitted, but you stand in the righteousness of Christ. And God would look to him and turn the deaf ear. And if you he heard him, he would say, I'm sorry. But every accusation that you have, you have just made against my son. Oh, you think you're making it against Mike Curtis? He's in Christ. And your accusations are therefore leveled against my son. How dare you? You are disbarred. Satan, meaning accuser, he is the accuser of the brothers, and until that time of Christ's death, he could legitimately bring accusations against the people of God. In the Old Testament, Christ looked ahead to the cross, and now he looks back. The devil is no longer allowed access to point the finger at you and say, wait a second, God. Do you remember even in the book of Job, Job chapter 1? God said, as Satan was entering into his courtroom, he said, oh, by the way, have you noticed my servant Job? He is the most righteous in all the land. God appealed to righteousness. How much more the righteousness of Christ that he would appeal to and therefore render every 
accusation of Satan, the accuser of the brothers, null and void. And therefore, I put it this way, he has been disbarred. He is no longer allowed access into the courtroom. The father here, the judge, hears no accusations against you, my friend. But there is one thing the devil can do, and he can come to you, and he can accuse you in your ears. He is the father of lies, and he will whisper lies to you, and he will seek to condemn you. He will seek to point out all of your failures. And apart from Christ, you see, he would be true. Every accusation would be true. But according to God, because you all of your sins, all of the guilt and the shame washed away, gone, not guilty, acquitted. And the impartation of his righteousness, of Jesus himself, in which I stand. And because of this, every accusation the devil whispers in your ear is a lie. It is a lie not not because you appeal to yourself, because then they would be true, but because you appeal to Christ himself, and you are in Christ. So here's what I'm going to do. We're, going to, we're about ready to have communion right now. I'm going to invite you into the courtroom of God and once again hear from himself, not guilty, but righteous. And I would invite you at the bar to lay down every single accusation the devil's been whispering in your ear this last week. Every single one of them. Every bit of shame that he's been revealing to you. Every sin that you have committed and whispered, you are worthless. You are unworthy of anything from God. Let me just remind you of this past week of your sins. That would be sufficient. And God says, no. No. So every one of those accusations, I'm going to tell you, church, lay them down. You stand in the righteousness of Christ. There's no accusations that this prosecutor, Satan, can ever bring against you. None. Because you are in Christ.